Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. Sometimes what is needed isn't really a change in our external circumstances, but more in our internal circumstances, the way that we see the world. What that makes me think of is a quote by Marianne Williamson, who is a spiritual teacher who does a lot with um, a field a study um, called A Course in Miracles, which is a psychological and spiritual inquiry into the mind. Um, and what she says there that often the miracle doesn't come from things shifting externally, it comes from our shifting our perspective in a way where, which is compatible with more peace and love. And so I think often, indeed, what you're saying is true. And it's not about lowering expectations, though. Mm -hmm. That's the paradox. It's really starting to, I guess what you can say is vibrate at a higher frequency, vibrate at a frequency compatible with more gratitude, peace, and love, and thereby feeling happy with the situation that you have. And the thing that's so interesting about this is so many people find their greatest joy in life after a cancer diagnosis, mm -hmm. you know, because something about that, being on the brink of, you know, confronting death and recognizing that life is finite, really puts people into a state where they recognize, wow, I can't take th things for granted anymore. Every day is special. And suddenly people become much more grateful, much more loving. Their heart opens. And the little things in life that we take for granted day by day, the beautiful sunshines, the you know comfortable couch we're sitting on, the delicious food we're eating, suddenly take on new meaning and bring more fulfillment that they ever have. So I think that, yes, a perceptual shift can very much lead to fulfillment, but it's not about lowering your expectations. It's actually about increasing your frequency. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Cool fact. 
A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Anna, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. It's a pleasure to be here, Srini. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it is my pleasure to have you here. So I actually came across your work because uh, my friend Daniel Laporte, also a former guest on Unmistakable Creative, shared uh, a copy, a, a picture of your book on Instagram. And you know, I was wrestling with some issues in my own life about fulfillment. And so I thought, okay, let me order this book and see what you know is, is in it. And I found myself just underlining and highlighting endless amounts of it. So I immediately thought, all right, we, we really need to have you on the show and, and have a talk about this. But before we get into um, this entire concept of fulfillment, I want to start by asking you, what did your parents do for a living? And how did that end up influencing the choices that you've made throughout your life and your career? Sure, sure. And um, I will answer that question before I um, will also mention uh, or comment on what you said about the highlighting my book, because that's how I first learned about you, Sharini. You um, were highlighting a ton of my book, and it kept coming up on my feet. I'm like, who is this person who keeps (laughs) (laughs) photographing pictures of my book and, you know, highlight? I love this guy. Who is this person? And then you finally emailed me, hi, I'd like to interview you. (laughs) So I'm like, definitely. I like this guy. Okay. Um, So, but as to your question, what do my parents do for a living? So, uh, my family, when I was five years old, we immigrated from Moscow, Russia. In Russia, both of my parents were engineers. So here, coming over, they had to start fresh. And my mom, I actually come from a long line of mathematicians. Everybody's so mathematically minded. My mom here became a computer programmer, and my dad became a biomedical engineer working for the University of Illinois at Chicago. Um, and both of them, interestingly, you know how they say the average number of jobs a person has in their lifetime is seven. Both of my parents in the United States had both of their jobs for 30 years until they retired. So that was uh, what they did for a living. And they inspired in me this mathematical love, love for, you know, uh, rationality thinking in that way. And I think that in my genetics led me to think that maybe I want to become a mathematician. So that was kind of the path that I went all the way through in high school. I was on the math team. I was a big nerd. And, um, then I went to Stanford and fell in love with the brain. And somehow my love for math became trumped by um, my love for figuring out how the brain works and also how human nature works. And that ultimately led me to discover the books of uh, a man named Irvin Yalom, who's an existential psychiatrist and was one of the mentors uh, that led me to ultimately pursue psychiatry myself. I loved reading his books. So as I read his cases, they so resonated with me and I thought I want to be doing this myself for a living one day writing and seeing patients and here I am many years later Hmm. Um, I'm curious uh what impact uh, growing up, at, you know, in an immigrant family, you know, with parents who are, were immigrants had on your life in general and, and, you know, what your childhood experience was like, because I, I know, you know, when I compare the immigrant experience of, you know, growing up with immigrant parents to, you know, the stories that I hear friends who aren't immigrants tell, they're, they're like vastly different in terms of expectations, in terms of, you know, what we're taught about life and, and fulfillment, you know, ironically, like, you know, I, I think at least in the Indian culture, we are very much on an achievement oriented path 
path from the time we're old enough to understand what we're being told. And I'm curious, you know, is that the case with, you know, Russian immigrants and, and you know, how did that impact your life if at all? That was so much the case with my uh, family. And it wasn't even that they, um, you know, education was very valued. But I think that that also went with my personality because I loved learning. I always loved learning. I loved homework. I loved school. It was uh, not something that ever I felt was a chore. I just really loved knowledge from an early age, as I'm sure probably is similar to yourself and many other people who've, you know, pursued some form of an intellectual knowledge base discipline. But yeah, absolutely. Coming as immigrants, you know, you believe in the American dream. You believe anything is possible and you start to instill these values in your children. And I feel my parents, they see what I've been able to accomplish and they're like, well, maybe in Russia, you know, you would have been able to do half of this, but they really live vicariously through, you know, a lot of the things and the opportunities I've had that just were never open in Russia because it was a communist culture and we were Jewish. And there was a lot of limitations on what my, you know, family by virtue of being Jewish was uh, able to access in Russia. Mm-hmm. So um, I'm curious, you, know, you brought up being Jewish. I'm curious what uh, impact, if any, your spiritual and religious beliefs, um, you know, one, you know, what were they like growing up and, and what impact have they had uh, on this career path that you've chosen? Because it, it seems like the two seem fairly intertwined at this point. Yeah, at this point, absolutely. Um, so in Russia, Russia is anti-religious or it's a-religious. You know, there's really communism uh, has an anti-religious ideology. And even though we were Jewish, my parents never really had a place to practice. And that really wasn't a part of our cultural identity. For my dad, Judaism was much more about this long lineage and history of people being persecuted in many ways and having to rise above and being a minority. And, you know, my dad would have to, um, people would say anti-Semitic things in his yard and my dad would like beat everybody up and, you know, for that way back in the day. And he even told the story of how one day there was a big fight. And then my um, grandmother, my dad's mother was called and she's like, well, once again, your son beat everybody up. And she's like, no, he didn't. He's at home sick all day. (laughs) You know, so he was like, so my dad had to develop, you know, essentially being, you know, like constantly having to defend himself because there was so much anti-Semitism. My mom, it was interesting, kind of had a, a different course she was um, on the um, training for the Russian Olympic swim team. So she was a master swimmer. She was like the number one, uh, uh, she was a swim champion of Moscow when she was 15 years old. And so by virtue of being an athlete, she was actually able to overcome so many of the restrictions placed on Jews. So she was able to go to a school equivalent to Harvard where there, the quota on Jews was very, very low. Mm-hmm. So so anyway, this kind of how my Judaism impacted my parents and what, um, you know, it does for me is just make me recognize that, my goodness, I'm in a place where it's actually so okay to practice, to be who you are. Nobody's persecuting anybody, at least overtly. You know, there's freedom of expression. Um, and Judaism, for me, was also one of the ways in which I got into um, spirituality eventually. Mm. And spirituality, you know, is something that's, as you've read in my book, has been a huge part of how I practice, of how I work with my, my patients, and just of how I understand the world. Mm. Um, <clears throat> so, you know, one of the things that is always interesting to me is is these moments when people discover what they're destined to do and, and feel completely drawn to something like you were when you opened this uh, psychologist book, this existential book that you spoke of. Um, you know, when, I mean, in your own experience with friends, in your own experience with patients that you've worked with, what is it that brings about those sort of peak experiences in people's lives that have the, the capacity to alter the trajectory? And, and one, can they be brought about deliberately? Uh, two, why do so many people miss them? Right, right. That's such an important question. And I can answer that like emotionally from an emotional standpoint and also intellectually. So um, I'll give you the intellectual answer first, because that's a huge debate in you know my field and in the literature. And the question you're asking is, what is the mechanism of therapeutic action? How does therapy work? What you know is it actually that leads people to change their lives? And there is a ton of theories on that. And the bottom line, at the end of the day, it really is your relationship with whoever it is that um, is in your life, who's the therapist, or it could be another important relationship. Relationships heal people. Love heals people people heal people. And so that, you know, but other theories on what's the mechanism of therapeutic action, what actually creates these peak moments are that it's usually some rational understanding together with a deeply felt emotional connection to what's being, you know, thought. Like somehow people feel something that they don't feel before. And the newness of that feeling opens up a possibility and a potential 
potentiality within themselves of which they were previously unaware. And that just shows them, wow, life could be really different. And so it has to be like that together, the heart and mind working in unity, hopefully in the context of a powerful relationship where that change happens. That's, you know, one answer. The other answer, which is a much more personal spiritual answer is people have moments of revelation. People experience crazy things in their life. that they can't predict or they could never imagine coming. And those things really just shift the trajectory of their own lives. And, you know, these are synchronicities. Carl Jung termed the, uh, um, coined the word synchronicity to be meaningful coincidences. These are things to which we, which we imbue with a certain kind of meaning that takes us above and beyond the mundane, you know, experiences of life. It's really transcendent and meaningful beyond what, um, you know, really it's in line with our purpose. So that's, you know, a whole other thing. For me, it was the, it was a combination of both. It was having an amazing therapist um, who really helped me to better understand myself that enabled me to change my life. But then after I feel like that part of my life was much more grounded and in control, then the miracles and the synchronicity start happening and experiences came into my life that I was like, what in the world is happening? And it was those, you know, moments of revelation that really just created shifts for me. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure you've had, you know, similar, similar yeah, I mean, experiences. I, I, it's funny the way you, you describe that. I, I think of the first time I ever stood up on a surfboard and knowing that, wait a minute, this is going to completely alter the entire trajectory of my life. Right, right. What was it that you felt? Can you even put language to that? Or is it something that's like ineffable? Oh, I mean, I've spent 10 years putting language to it. I mean, I've written books about it, articles about it. I mean, I just, I think it was this intense sort of euphoria and freedom and this sense of, wow, when this is happening, I feel better than I felt in my entire life and I want to feel like this all the time. Um, like I will do anything to ensure that this is a a feeling that I get to experience on a regular basis. Right. So feeling joyful, feeling fulfilled, feeling alive, seeing the possibilities, like transcending the mundane of, of the world essentially. Mm -hmm. Right. And it's that transcendent experience. You wonder how much of that can you actually live in day to day? And is it possible to exist in that state? Or is it inevitable that those states really are kind of penetrated by moments of darkness, you know, dark nights of the soul, pain, Mm -hmm. in order to accentuate the fact that the transcendent moments are indeed so special, meaningful. Yeah. Yeah. So I I do want to come back to all of this, uh, the the idea of synchronicity and also, you know, how a lot of it started to occur when you got grounded. But before we get there, um, walk me through going from Stanford to, you know, your personal interest in this area of fulfillment, like what led to this topic in particular that you wanted to explore? In, in so much detail. Right, right. So um, uh, at Stanford, I worked in the neurobiology lab with Dr. Robert Sapolsky. Mm-hmm. Um, he studies the effects of stress on the brain. And essentially what I did for two years, nonstop, like millions of hours a week, <laughs> was use rat guillotines to cut off rat heads, digest, uh, dissect rat brains, isolate the hippocampus, which is the part of the brain responsible for learning and memory, um, slice a little part of it, and then look and see how it metabolized in response to certain stressors. And so basically the idea is that that part of the brain, the hippocampus, responsible for learning and memory, is selectively vulnerable to the effects of stress, meaning that stress affects our learning and memory capacity more than any other mental function. This is why stress is often, you know, uh, people aren't able to think. They have, you know, a lot of people come in with brain fog, dementia, cognitive issues, and really it's just a function of their life being completely overloaded with stress or the body being overloaded with stress. So that um, was where my fascination in the mind began. And um, it was during that time, like I mentioned, that I discovered Dr. Yellow's books. And that was in, you know, one of my girlfriend's uh, rooms in college. I just, she was reading it. So I started reading it and I was like, wow, this is fascinating. This is really, really neat. And then in reading that, I realized that my own journey, because I feel like, you know, some people have always felt themselves to be simple, easy to understand. I've always found myself to be complex, difficult to understand. And for many years, it was hard for me to even understand myself. And so for me, really, the question understanding, better understanding human nature and connecting to other people was in large part to decipher some inner mystery, which might sound indulgent and it might sound self-serving, but 
at the end of the day, we can't really help others, especially help others on the path of their own self-discovery if we haven't done the work ourselves. And so it was from that place, the place of inner confusion of not knowing um, that I started on my own journey to try to figure things out. Um, After Stanford, I worked for a few years as a management consultant, which was a break from school because my brain was completely burned out. I had <laughs> worked too hard, done too much, yada, yada. Management consulting was a totally different world, and it really just gave my brain a break, and I learned there about professionalism. Whole different world. Loved the work, but knew that what I was meant to do was to be a doctor, and so eventually went to Yale Medical School and was debating between the heart and the mind, cardiology versus psychiatry. I thought I was going to be a psychiatrist all along. It was the plan. But something about the idea of studying the heart from a philosophical standpoint also was just so resonant. Um, But at the end of the day, I ended up studying psychiatry. And what I didn't mention was at Stanford, I also studied philosophy. So I did biology and philosophy. And philosophy is really a way of applying mathematics to human nature and to how the world works. So psychiatry was the way in which philosophy and biology most worked. It was most in line with who I am. And so that took me eventually to Yale Medical School and then eventually to my NYU psychiatry program. Um, And then, you know, I finished my residency and finally went on to do the nature, the kind of work that I want, which is to work with people like you and I going through difficult life changes, transitions, and really trying to grow as people. And all of this has been a journey of fulfillment, which I can, t- you know, which you read about in my book and which I can tell you about in much more detail. Mm. But really, all of that has been what together has led to this question of how can people feel fulfilled? What is fulfillment? How do mind, body and spirit work together in creating a fulfilled state for a human being? Mm. I'm curious, um, you know, one of the things that you talk about is a definition of fulfillment and this line in particular, you know, is, is something I highlighted. Each person's definition of fulfillment is unique. For some, this involves a vibrant health, a loving, intimate relationship, meaningful work, financial security, children and a home of one's own. For others, it includes connection to a higher power being part of a supportive community in the presence of creative outlets for self-expression. Um, one, I'm curious, you know, has your own definition of, of fulfillment changed over time? Um, two, you know, how do people figure out what it is that, uh, you know, is their, their definition of fulfillment? Uh, and three, you know, it takes me back to something that, you know, you may have heard in the conversation that I had with Srini Pillay about self-esteem maintenance versus self-esteem optimization. And sometimes I almost wonder if, okay, you know what, I'll be fulfilled if I'm willing to lower my standards in my life. And I'm curious what you have to say, which I realize are like three questions in one. Right, right. And all such great questions. Yes. Um, yeah. Okay. I'll go backwards. I'll start with question number three. Um, and whether um, sometimes what is needed isn't really a change in our external circumstances, but more in our internal circumstances, the way that we see the world. What that makes me think of is a quote by Marianne Williamson, who is a spiritual teacher who does a lot with um, a field a study um, called A Course in Miracles, which is a psychological and spiritual inquiry into the mind. Um, And what she says there that often the miracle doesn't come from things shifting externally. It comes from our shifting our perspective in a way where, which is compatible with more peace and love. And so I think often indeed what you're saying is true and it's not about lowering expectations though. Mm -hmm. That's the, paradox. It's really starting to, I guess what you can say is vibrate at a higher frequency, vibrate at a frequency compatible with more gratitude, peace, and love, and thereby feeling happy with the situation that you have. And the thing that's so interesting about this is so many people find their greatest joy in life after a cancer diagnosis, Mm -hmm. you know, because something about that, being on the brink of, you know, confronting death and recognizing that life is finite, really puts people into a state where they recognize, wow, I can't take things for granted anymore. Every day is special. And suddenly people become much more grateful, much more loving. Their heart opens. And the little things in life that we take for granted day by day, the beautiful sunshines, the you know comfortable couch we're sitting on, the delicious food we're eating, suddenly take on new meaning and bring more fulfillment that they ever have. So I think that, yes, a perceptual shift can very much lead to fulfillment, but it's not about lowering your expectations. It's actually about increasing your frequency. So that's the third question. Um, Your um, first question, um, can you 
as I was talking about this, yeah. tell me the <laughs> repeat, repeat the questions Absolutely. again. The last, um, the first yeah, yeah. Yes. So I'm curious, um, <laughs> you know, how has your definition of fulfillment changed over time? Right. Okay. That's right. So my own definition of fulfillment, right. So, um, factors in my definition have changed and others haven't. Um, and it really is just about, I think my own personal evolution and what's been important to me and what's been meaningful to me. Um, I was always very, very studious. My work has always been such a huge priority in my life. And I always felt like this is what I need to be doing at first because of my parents' expectations, but eventually because I recognized that my purpose in this world was to help people and to help people to grow, to help people to grow through the path of psychiatry and eventually through the path of psychiatry together with spirituality. And so um, that happened very, very gradually. And at the beginning and at the end of that journey, work um, was a huge part. Work and doing purposeful, meaningful things always was a huge um, um, aspect of my fulfillment. Now, over time, other things became important that never were before. Like in high school and college, relationships, yes, I would date people here and there, I'd go on dates. They never were that important in the sense that somehow school seems to trump them. But over time, the um, desire for a relationship, the desire to have a family, to meet somebody, to meet my soulmate, somehow that became more and more and more important in my life and also more difficult to manifest by virtue of having put all of this energy and effort into this other <laughs> source of fulfillment. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, and my whole, you know, a large part of my book was really um, my thought that finding my soulmate would be a fool's errand, that, you know, here I am making this decision that this was a huge part of my fulfillment, but I'm able to manifest everything else in my career, but I can't manifest this. What's wrong with me? Uh -huh. You know? So, yeah. So the answer is that things have changed, but things also have very much remained the same. Um, and the other thing that's also changed is spirituality. Spirituality was never a part of my life before. Now it's a huge part of my life and I can, you know, certainly take you through that journey, yeah. but now, yeah, now um, it's really about also trying to elevate my own consciousness and to really vibrate myself at a higher frequency of love and gratitude and to really, you know, try to get away from the lower frequencies of self-pity, of victimhood, of regret, of sadness, of depression, and other things that were really a part of my consciousness for such a large part of my life. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting. Um, I, I'm really curious about the, the love interest thing because that's just uh, when you said that, you, you know, you said, you know, why is it that I'm unable to manifest this one thing? And paradoxically, it's because you're putting all this energy into it. It makes me think of something that Sean Acor wrote about in uh, The Happiness Advantage, where he said, you know, we have the, the model for happiness backwards in that we think if this thing happens, then I'll be happy. And he said, really, it should be the other way around. He said, you know, happiness is literally one of the greatest amplifiers of, you know, performance in virtually every aspect of our lives. Um, so one, I'm curious, you know, what, what kind of caused that internal shift for you? Cause I know, you know, from having read the book that you did actually end up meeting your husband. Yes, yes, yes. Um, yeah, very much so. And I think that's so true. And I think that also, you know, um, that same um, idea that you're talking about is also the reason why so often we can have everything but still not feel fulfilled. Mm. Um, and it's because we feel that we will be fulfilled if A, B, C, D, if we reach the following goals, that fulfillment is actually a destination as opposed to it really being a state that we try to inhabit as much as we can in our lives and it being really the journey itself. And our capitalist society or Western society teaches us that we need to focus on that which is missing, um, whether that be you know, a nicer home or the nicer car or greater achievements or greater, whatever it is that's missing. And we need to focus all our energy and resources to make ourselves whole through that, as opposed to recognizing, not focusing on our lack, but focusing on that, which is abundant in our life, which is so, so much, no matter who you are, no matter what hardships you've endured, there's so much more abundance in your life than lack. And the focus on abundance is what you're speaking about with the focus on happiness and how that actually precedes all the other experiences. When you have that as your baseline, when you have that at your core, you can vibrate at a frequency of love, at a frequency of joy without really needing something else to be the source of your joy or to be the source of your happiness or fulfillment. And I think that that's where we, where we all want to, at the end of the day, try to get to. Mm -hmm. So there are a couple of things that, that come from this. I, I want to ask you about two things, um, actually probably more than two things based on, you know, kind of where this is going so far. Uh, 
you know, some people have a natural negativity bias, right? They're no, no matter how many, you know, gratitude exercises they do, like they, they kind of can't help but go to that place. I know because I struggle with this. Like I have to take insane amounts of precautions to keep my mind from going to this place of, of sort of rumination, things that I could have done differently in situations and things that might have, you know, been better that turned out worse than I wanted them to. Um, so I'm curious, you know, one, what you have to say about that, um, and two, you know, I think that you're right. We do have an insane amount of abundance in our lives, but I think so often, you know, we tend to, to come at things from a place of scarcity. And I'm curious, you know, in your experience, I mean, if you're looking at it, not just, um, you know, in terms of what we're talking about, but, you know, financially, emotionally, how you make that shift from um, scarcity to abundance. And then the third thing is that. I think that everybody listening to this, myself included, and you can intellectually understand what you were talking about, and we don't question the validity of it. But for us to really emotionally get that and make live that in our bones is a whole different animal. And I'm curious why that is and what, what it takes for that to change. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. So we'll start with the first question, which I love, which is about rumination and perfectionism and obsessions and negativity biases, which truth be told, I so relate and empathize with you because I have the same thing and I've had it all my life. And that's actually one of the reasons I was so drawn to Dr. Yalom because one of his books is called When Nietzsche Wept, A Tale of Obsessions. And obsessions are when, you know, things just keep going on and on in our minds and we're spinning on wheels and we know that it's not good for us, but our minds are more powerful. It's like, we, it's so hard to stop them. And I think this also happens when we are given so much positive reinforcement for the super, super fast and super, super charged working of our minds that it's hard to then slow them down when it's not as adaptive and productive anymore. So this is where obsessions and ruminations come from. I totally get it. I'm so there. Um, And then, you know, a lot of them have to do with perfectionism because um, a lot of it could be about self-hatred and self-blame and shame and not feeling that we're good enough in some way, shape or form because the two limited core beliefs that are shared, there's been you know, studies on this by about 80% of humanity is number one, that I'm not worthy of happiness and number two, that I'm not good enough. Mm. Like these are things that we harbor deep in our soul and it's actually, it's so sad and so disturbing, but this is really the root of ruminations and obsessions. It all comes from deeply held implicit core beliefs often that we're not even aware of that then lead to a lot of our thoughts. So I can, you know, speak much more on that, but I'll answer your other two questions. Um, First, the second one being about the shift from scarcity to abundance and how to create that shift. And that actually also, I think, ties in a lot with your third question about how, if we know something intellectually, how do we make it actually applicable and how do we make it like a part of our lives? How do we not just intellectualize and keep it at a distance, but really integrate it into our being and enable ourselves to live our life at a higher level based on that knowledge? How do we become more coherent as people? Um, And I think, you know, things like that, there really are no shortcuts. Um, It's the, well, there's, it's not that there's shortcuts per se. There's a lot of different ways. There's ways that you can work at the level of the conscious mind. And working at the conscious mind is really focusing on those things in life on a regular basis of which you, for which you are very grateful. Focusing on the abundance and reminding yourself, this is making gratitude lists. This is um, everyday thinking of three things that you are thankful for and three people that you want to thank for the things that you have. It's starting to create that shift in a very, very conscious, profound way that is based on your deliberate intent and consistent effort, because this really does take consistent effort. Now, the other way is at the level of the unconscious mind and starting to really explore deeply held core beliefs of which we're often unaware, starting to make the unconscious conscious and thereby recognize that we have much more freedom over our choices than our life and, you know, our repetition compulsions would allow us to believe we do. Um, And so how do you do that? So getting at the unconscious mind, there's many different ways. And there's some amazing things that actually enable you to get at your unconscious through the unconscious, kind of going like around the conscious mind, kind of recognizing that your thoughts can get in the way of all this. Your thoughts aren't always helpful. And the conscious mind only plays a little piece in who we are and the actions that we make. Because if the conscious mind played a full, you know, fully was fully active and was 100% successful, we would all weigh exactly what we want to weigh. Our lives would, you know, be exactly as we want. We'd look exactly as we want to look. Nothing would be off. 
But so many of us have bad habits, have addictions, have obsessions, etc. Welcome to life. Welcome to the power of the conscious mind. Welcome to, you know, self-sabotaging behaviors, which are a natural part of being human beings. And so different techniques help people to get at the unconscious mind. And that includes the emotional freedom technique. That includes, you know, tapping. That includes um, the work of Henry Grayson in the uh, book Mindful Loving. And in his other books, really talks about ways in which to get into your unconscious mind. There's a ton of people out there trying to figure out more ways. And there's also ways with binaural beats and sacred acoustics. So meditations aimed at enabling you to go deeper faster. This is all ways of getting at your higher consciousness, um, connecting to your higher self, connecting to your soul, to your unconscious mind. A lot of people think your soul and your unconscious mind are actually synonymous and starting to use that to shift not just the deeply held core beliefs, but also the thoughts downstream of that and then the actions that we take in this world. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Mm-hmm. So I want to ask you um, one question in particular. I remember this section. This really stood out to me, and I thought thought a lot about this. And and I remember you you posed a question that gave me a lot to think about. Um, You know, sometimes we deceive ourselves into thinking that our self-critical thoughts and behaviors are helping us to implement positive changes in our lives. But the result is often the opposite. The more we criticize ourselves, the more we keep ourselves stuck in old patterns. And change is difficult to implement in a climate of Um, self-hatred. I'm curious, one, how you stop the self-criticism what in your experience has helped people to stop that because i know you posed a really thought-provoking question about that um and then the other is um what is the role that self-worth plays in fulfillment and what in your experience both you know personally and from looking at your patients are the things that cause people to question their self-worth what kinds of situations circumstances and experiences you know make them you know think that their self-worth is out of their control 
Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, beautiful questions. Yeah, and um, that's that's exactly it. I think at the end of the day, if I were to um, pinpoint one issue that is at the heart of every single thing, every single patient that comes into my office struggles with, it's questions of self worth. You know, and especially people who have what can be perceived as exaggerated self-worth or narcissism, that's actually the biggest issues with self-worth because true um, self-worth and self-confidence really is humility. You don't have to prove anything to anybody. But so many people. So this is something that I struggle with my patients um, on an everyday basis because it is so prevalent in our society. Expectations are so high. People's expectations of themselves are so high that it really, they feel as though they have to live up to some unimaginable standard or something outside of themselves in order to be lovable, in order to be accepted. And where does that come from? That often comes from all of the adaptive value we placed and that our parents placed on achievement when we were young. You know, you came back with your 101 on your test and you came back with your A plus. Oh my God, Srini, that was amazing. Great job. You're, you know, And so we begin to unconsciously associate love and achievement. And um, it's called, there's a psychological term for it. It's called over-justification theory. Um, rather than doing things because, you know, rather than being rewarded for doing your best and you're rewarded, you, you begin to be confused and think that love comes from achievement. Love comes from being perfect. Love comes from this. Um, a lot of families are able to get around it, but I think especially immigrant families, mm-hmm. there's so much um, pressure put on their kids to achieve because really the parents are living vicariously through the children. This is a land of opportunity. Here's opportunities for you and I that our moms and dads never had. So, and this is where so much of the self-criticism comes from. Now, your second question, how do we stop it? It's also, it goes back to that, you know, uh, question. Um, There's conscious ways and there's unconscious ways. At the conscious level, it really is recognizing the self-critical thoughts when they come, becoming aware of them. Because when you think about it, we think about 72,000 thoughts a day. That's a lot of thoughts. Of those, what percent are self-critical? And what percentage are self-critical and completely outside of our awareness? And that could be like, Looking in the mirror as you're passing by and thinking, oh, I look tired today. Oh, I look, I've gained three pounds. Or like getting a um, criticism on a work document that you created. Oh, God, I don't believe I did did this again. Or someone looking at you wrong. God, I wonder why that person is mad at me. I wonder what I did. Like, you know, and... All of that comes from a lot of, you know, cognitive distortions that we have. And so self-criticism and dealing with it has to be done at the conscious level where you, where it begins with awareness. And eventually, once you become more aware of it, to start to really actively challenge that and say, okay, why am I criticizing myself? What are other ways of being? How else can I see things? And really just, you know, Louise Hay is a pioneer. She recently passed away and she's a pioneer in the self-help movement. Whenever patients came to her, one of the very first things she did was give them a mantra. And that mantra was three words. I am enough. Because what um, you're describing, problems with self-worth and self-criticism, was what Louise Hay identified as the number one issue facing all of her clients, which is what I find as well in my practice. And so she would have clients recite this mantra up to hundreds of times a day. And she wanted people to change not just their conscious beliefs, but for the mantra to become so powerful for people to internalize it and for it to actually shift any part of themselves that feels like they're not enough, that feels as though there's something really, really off, that feels like, you know, they're only going to be lovable if A, B, C, D. So that's actually a mantra I often give my patients, I am enough, and to start reciting it whenever you possibly can to start to shift some of these uh, patterns that you're describing. I'm curious. Um, it's funny because I think we both come from very type A families. I mean, as I've told you in our, one of our previous conversations, I have a sister who's like, you know, genius level achievement by all standards. My friend jokingly says she's every Indian parent's dream come true. Um, I'm curious uh, if there was a point at which you uh, stopped feeling that you needed to prove anything to anybody. And was there a point in your life when you did feel like you had something to prove? Yeah, yeah. I definitely remember way back in the day, you know, because my whole thing was mathematics. And whenever I couldn't solve a math problem, I felt like something was just wrong. And 
I was good at math. I was on the math team. I went to the Illinois Math and Science Academy. I would always qualify for all those contests. I would get to the final level, but I would never win. There was always somebody who was better than me. And because these people were absolute geniuses. These are people who, you know, were um, at my high school. There were people who would place first in like the world. And so these, this is my competition. I would never measure up, understandably. <laughs> but somehow or another, that always um, bothered me in, in my perfectionistic state because I'm used to, you know, being able to put my achievement towards anything and study hard and and here I was not able to do as well on these math competitions and then I remember having this thought wow why would anyone love me if I you know if I can't do this like I just remember having this thought as I was contemplating a relationship I kind and I remember like feeling like this profound sense of my own unlovability by virtue of you know having this perceived deficit <laughs> like really you know and, I, and it was like um in sophomore year in high school where I had this thought and it's really been like this uh, process of authenticity and starting to just like like myself as I am, accept myself for my strengths and my weaknesses, becoming more comfortable with um, different parts of myself and starting to also prize other things both in myself and in other people um, that really created that shift. But absolutely, I very much struggled with that and it took a long time to, you know, to create that shift. Um, I'm curious about one other thing. Um, what's interesting to me is, is I think people who are, are drawn to work like yours and, and people like you and I, I mean, if I'm being very candid, half my bookshelf is filled with self-help books because I think I'm seeking answers for things. Um, I'm curious in your practice, what have you seen uh, as the difference between people who change quickly and people who seem to just stay stuck in endless patterns for years on end? And, and why is that? It's such a great question. And and on one hand, I can tell you answers. On the other hand, I wish I knew. <laughs> it's something that, you know. You'd probably be a billionaire that, like, if you knew, right? <laughs> yeah, it, it bedazzles me because there are some people who it's just amazing. With the right insight and the right connection, boom, 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 their whole life has changed. They need like five sessions and they came to do what they need to do and then they're gone. They're done. Other people, you see them twice a week, three times a week for years and the changes are so slow and so minute. And, and then you're like, well, what am I doing differently here? What did they need? Maybe I'm not connecting with, maybe my interpretations aren't on. Maybe I'm not giving them what they need. Maybe we need to be more action oriented. Maybe like, I don't, maybe there's not enough eye contact. God knows <laughs> whatever it is. It is, it's all, it really just continuously fascinates me how some people within a few sessions, boom, 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 their life changes and other people. So I think part of it is what we do as therapists. Part of it really is the person and I really, you know, I feel part of it is also karmic. We've come in here with certain karmic, you know, ties, with certain karmic challenges, with certain soul corrections, or those things, those challenges that come up for our souls over and over and over again. Some are easier and some are harder. And I always, you know, try to meditate on the kinds of patients that I draw into my practice. And I really meditate to draw in people who are ready to change, who are ready to make, you know, concrete shifts in their life, who are ready to be honest about who they are and move forward. Forward. And for the most part, that's exactly who comes in. But even with people who come in with that intent, there's such a range. Some in two years of twice weekly therapy, very small shifts. Others within three sessions, like they're, you know, golden. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they're, they're there. Um, so that raises one other question. Um, knowing that a lot of parents are listening to this, uh, I'm curious what you would have to say to them about this conversation, because I think my, my ongoing joke is, is, you know, like my, my one of the funniest things I ever heard about parenthood was from my friend Philip McKernan, who said this on Unmistakable Creative. He said, no matter what you do, you're going to fuck your kids up. <laughs> that, um, which it's funny because, you know, it's funny because I think we all recognize that there's a grain of truth to that. Right. I mean, I. Like there are moments when I, I think, OK, yeah, my parents could have done a better job with this and that. And then I think to myself okay, this is a tall order to say, you know what, your job is to take me and turn me into a perfect, emotionally healthy, completely functional human being without screwing anything up along the way. Um, right, that's right. a tall order <laughs> on any human being. So I'm just curious what you, you know, what, what you would want parents to know about this conversation. 
Absolutely. I think the most important thing a parent can do is to love their child with their full heart and to listen to their child, to do their best to understand their child and to help that child own their own strength and power. What this actually makes me think of is a family that I consulted for um, as a psychiatrist a while back. And they had a daughter who was about 20 who had a psychotic break. And this was a woman who was so motivated. And despite her psychotic break, she's on these heavy medications. um, And I came in as a consultant. I didn't actually treat her. I didn't put her on the medications, but she was on these heavy medications. She's doing everything she can to be amazing, to like take the classes. And then her parents, because they think that that's what good parents do, continue to push her, to push her, to push her. She's not getting enough sleep. She's, And I say to the parents, you know what? Like your child had a psychotic break. This is a very, very serious condition. Like some people are able to move out of the psychotic break and go and have a normal, stable life. Other people it can go in a very serious downward spiral that could really you know, incapacitate your child. The last thing you should do with this child is to push her. And look, she already pushes herself so, so much. You have such a motivated, amazing child who despite this hardship has overcome and is really trying. I would do everything to help her stay balanced, to help her work less, to encourage her to take better care of herself. Self-care comes first. And that is what I would say to all parents. Self-care comes first. None of your child's accomplishments, nothing that they ever create is as important as their mental and physical health. If your child isn't mentally and physically healthy, nothing else matters. Meaning that if your child ends up, you know, with very, very serious issues from a stress-related breakdown, which does happen, which is, it's a very real thing. And that's because of the pressure they put upon themselves from the stress of their environment, from, you know, perfectionism, ruminations, obsessions, depression, from life, essentially. That's so serious. And so for parents, the best thing you can do is encourage your children to take the best care of themselves possible, to take care of their minds, to take care of their bodies, to get plenty of rest. And I know it sounds kind of like banal advice, but really, that is the most important thing if you don't have that you don't have anything Hmm. wow um i want to spend uh a little bit of time you know before we get to synchronicity and and start wrapping things up talking about this idea of forgiveness um there are two things that stood out to me and i I want to go back to both of them in the book i have these in my evernote you know so the person who will benefit the most from forgiveness is you when you're truly able to forgive somebody you can finally let go of the anger hurt resentment grudge sadness and vengeance that you've been carrying it around in your heart sometimes for years holding grudges is exhausting you're letting perpetrators live rent free in your heart and mind thereby continuing to let them hurt you forgiveness is simply the most energy efficient option we have in looking out for ourselves and the most conducive to health well-being and fulfillment and um i'm curious one are there people in your life that have hurt you profoundly in a way that it took you a long time to forgive them and how did you finally let go of it and why is it that we have a hard time with this even though we know what the benefits will be yes such important and great questions. And I do a lot of writing on these subjects. And when I write specifically on forgiveness, this is the point that a lot of people really like yesterday, someone just wrote on Instagram, I just published an article on victim mentality. And a lot of people came and asked a very similar question. You know, how really do you forgive someone who's hurt you so much? Um, And so just to highlight, forgiveness does not mean that you are condoning in any way what happened to you. It doesn't mean that you are condoning the actions of the the so-called perpetrator. And it certainly doesn't mean you're okay with it happening again, nor are you okay with letting down whatever boundaries you've put in place to that person, you know, coming back into your life, hurting you again, or anything like that? Actually, a precondition for forgiveness is a sense of safety about what happened and the existence of boundaries already in your life to enable you to go to the next stage, which is to clear your heart and mind of the resentment and anger you feel towards that person. Um, Why do we have so much trouble with this? We have so much trouble with this because we as human beings like to exist in victim mentality. And trust me, this is, you know, my husband and I always joke about this. I love to be a victim. I love to blame him for stuff. I love, (laughs) I'm feeling down. It must be his fault. What did he do this time? But it's not, it's never his fault. It's all me. And it's all me and my love for the victim mentality. And my husband's the exact same way. He, (laughs) we were like mirrors of each other in this way. We love to exist as victims. And because victim mentality keeps us from taking responsibility for how we're really feeling. It keeps us stuck in, you know, righteous indignation at times. It keeps us you know, really not having to move on from and take responsibility, not just for what happened to us, but for where we are right now and for our attitudes for it. This is why it's often so hard to forgive. And 
the first sentence that you read, that the person who most benefits from forgiveness, it's not the perpetrator. Often the perpetrator or whoever it was that has deeply hurt you, that person doesn't even know that you're forgiving. Forgiveness really is purely a self-focused act. It's a selfish act. You're doing it. You're forgiving this person. It's one of the most loving things you can engage in, but it also is an act that you're doing for yourself. Because you are the one who's letting go. You're the one who are who's clearing your heart. And the example that I give in my book is a friend of mine from Rwanda. I worked in Rwanda in 2009 doing um, PTSD work with genocide survivors. And there I met this amazing man named Jean-Baptiste. Jean-Baptiste was a victim of the genocide, as were all the people of Rwanda. But in a very profound way in that his neighbor, a young boy with whom Jean-Baptiste grew up, who used to come over to have dinner served by Jean-Baptiste's mother at Jean-Baptiste's house all the time, um, that neighbor went and during the genocide <clears throat> brutally murdered Jean-Baptiste's mother. And <clears throat> to the, you know, for what the neighbor had in his mind, basically you were told kill or be killed. The neighbor felt like he had to kill or he himself was going to be killed. So the neighbor at that point had been in jail for 14 years because of this. And Jean-Baptiste understandably harbored, harbored intense hatred and anger and resentment towards this man who was once his friend. And then he started running Rwanda's forgiveness program, which because it's such a small country with so many people, people have to, victims and perpetrators of the genocide have to live side by side. The only way that's possible is through forgiveness. And forgiveness, like I said, doesn't have to do with the other person. It's about you releasing hatred, you releasing resentment, you releasing what you've been carrying, releasing your grudge. So having run this program, one day Jean-Baptiste realized that what he needed to do was stop carrying around all his anger and hatred toward his neighbor, Paul. So he went to the jail, and when Paul saw him, Paul thought that Jean-Baptiste had come to kill him, and understandably so. But instead, Jean-Baptiste forgave Paul, and he describes it as the most liberating day of his whole life. And in order to prepare for that day, Jean-Baptiste did prayer and fasting and really asked God for help undertaking one of the most difficult things he's ever done in his life. So that to me is emblematic of what the human spirit is capable of. And whenever I think about who, you know, do I have in this world to forgive? And I do not have anyone to forgive who's done to me what Paul did to Jean-Baptiste. Nothing, nothing that even comes close. So I use Jean-Baptiste as my example. And whenever I find myself holding a grudge, being angry, feeling somehow harmed or, you know, wounded by somebody... I think, okay, you know what? I'm not going to give that person that power anymore. They can have their energy back. I'm going to take my energy back. I forgive them. That's it. Mm. Wow. Well, I think that um, makes really a kind of perfect place to, to bring this full circle and, and talk about this idea of synchronicity and, and wrap things up. Because I think, you know, earlier in our conversation, you recommended reaching this, you mentioned um, reaching this place of feeling grounded su such that sort of a synchronicity started to occur in your life. Um, one, you know, what did you mean by that? Can you tell us what your own experience was with that? And then two, you know, how do we find it in our own lives? Right. Yeah. So, so in my own life, um, I was going through just a difficult time. I felt like things were incongruent. Um, I was in my psychiatry residency at the time. I was dating this wonderful man. We were, you know, living in a cute little place in um, New York City. I had all of the accoutrements of success and I should have been happy, but there's something within me that just felt so off. I felt so on some level disconnected from myself, even though at the time I wouldn't have been able to tell you that that's what it was. And I was trying to figure all this out. And here I am also a psychiatrist trying to help all these other people get their lives together. And my profound belief about things is you can only take your patience as far as you yourself have gone. If you are stuck on certain things, it's going to be very hard for you to help patients get unstuck in those particular ways. And the very the most important thing you can do as a healer is to keep working on yourself, elevate yourself, get unstuck in the places that you need to get unstuck and move on. So this is what I was trying to do. So I started working with this psychiatrist who was a huge help to me and remains a mentor, a colleague, and my therapist to this day. And he was the first person who I feel really helped me to just turn my life around, turn my perspective around. What was the healing modality? What was the mechanism of therapeutic action? It was a million things, but it was really our relationship. It was a very, very powerful, wonderful relationship. And 
he really helped me. I feel stabilized and understand things. And I ended that relationship and I just like got myself more congruent with who I really am. And then when I was feeling a little bit better, things started to happen. One day I had this dream of a sign that said Cabal Revealed. And I, my mom had studied Kabbalah and, um, I thought maybe she'd sent me a book. Um, so I looked at my bookshelf after the dream to see if there was a book called Kabbalah revealed and there was no book. So I just forgot about the dream, move forward. And then two weeks later, I'm walking to meet a friend for dinner. And there is that exact sign for my dream Kabbalah revealed. And it was the Kabbalah Center. And I said, that's really strange. I had a dream about this. So I walked in, I took a little flyer, and I signed up for their Power of Kabbalah 1 class. And that was where I first started learning these ideas that I was in my junior year in residency at the time that really started to profoundly shift my conception of the world. The fundamental principle was that what we see with our eyes and hear with our ears, what we see in this reality that science believes to be 100% of reality is actually just 1% of the true reality. 99% of reality is unseen. It's something that's beyond. So it's a whole different conception of the world. And I was fascinated by it. And then it taught tools. There were tools um, of how to tap into that 99% reality. And the idea was that by creating shifts within ourselves, meaning by going against our, our nature and doing that which is most difficult for us, we can shift things externally. Like we can create miracles in our life. You change your outside world by changing your inside world. Now, as a psychiatrist, helping people change their lives and also trying to figure out how to change my own life, I thought, this is interesting. This is totally new, totally new paradigm. Um, and so I started trying it. And then amazing, miraculous things started to happen. This really works. And um, all sorts of things happened. Um, there was some people in my residency who were just very, very difficult. So, um, to, and they, you know, as residents, we're targets. <laughs> you know, we're, we're like the bottom of the totem pole. It's easy to pick on residents. But there are some people that are particularly difficult. And I started doing these, the exercises of Kabbalah. And then one day, unbeknownst to me, I come in and those people are gone. And I was like, what happened? Where are they? And they, um, the, you know, the, that department had closed. They were gone. And it's just such a little thing. But it's like things start to shift. Now, did my doing these little exercises have anything to do with these people leaving? Probably not. But it's just that little synchronicity. And synchronicities are a causal things. Did my doing things cause them to leave? Not at all. But somehow or another in my mind, they were connected. And so it was meaningful. But it was other things started happening as well. And I described them in my book and things started happening with patients. Um, things started happening with another man I met who I thought was my soulmate, but didn't end up being my soulmate. So little synchronicities. I'm not really describing. I feel like the miracles are, are the little, the strange things. Um, but they, they happen a lot. Okay. I'll, I'll describe one of them. I, um, after starting to date, I met this one man who I thought was my soulmate, but things didn't work out. I later, I found out after we got on a few dates that he was also dating many other women and just, you know, was emotionally unavailable, which I later would learn was a pattern that I had. I would draw in these emotionally unavailable men. And this was one of my soul corrections, which I eventually over a long time learned to correct. So, but when this man I thought was my soulmate, I was completely, completely distraught when I found out he was dating all these other people. And so one day I was sitting in an ice cream shop and this like woman comes in with a child and she says to me, I'm a psychic and I have a message for you. Can I give you a message? And I said, sure. Um, and she said, you met this man. His name is X and he's your soulmate. Things are going to work out for you. <laughs> it, was, it was such a crazy thing, right? Um, I'm like, who is this woman? How does she know this person's name? And why is she telling me things are going to work out? And the only thing that I can entertain, because this is also when I was starting to do Kabbalah, so I was like, wow, the world works in this magical way. This is magic. And it totally was magic. Um, the only thing I can entertain was that God had taken time out of his busy schedule, recognizing how hard I've been working on this whole Kabbalah thing, <laughs> to send a psychic to this ice cream store to give me this message that things are going to work out with this man. Um, and I was dumbfounded. And so needless to say, things didn't work out with that man. But when I thought about the message, the message the psychic gave me wasn't that things are going to work out with this man. She said things were going to work out and things really did work out in an even better way than I anticipated or expected. So that was just one of the synchronicities that showed up when I was starting to do some of the spiritual work after I was already more psychologically grounded. Mm. Wow. Um, well, I think that makes uh, <clears throat> a really sort of a beautiful place to to finish our conversation. So I want to uh, finish by asking you one last question, which is how we finish all of our interviews with the unmistakable creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? 
that it's something that's unmistakable is if we are in some way, shape, or form authentic, aligned with our soul, and connected to part of something greater. Those three things together. Awesome. Well, this has been truly thought-provoking and beautiful, as I expected it would be. Um, where can people learn more about you and your work? Thanks so much, Sweeney. It's been a pleasure. Um, people can learn more on my website, which is www.annausim, A-N-N-A-Y-U-S-I-M as in Mary.com. And my book, Fulfilled, is available on Amazon and anywhere else books are sold. Awesome. And for everybody listening, we'll wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person, because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.